Well, good morning. Well, this morning we're going we're gonna to look at the final parable in this series of parables. If you've been with us, we began this journey back in uh, January, late January, uh, taking a look at these parables that Jesus taught uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And right in the heart of the Gospel of Luke are, are a collection of parables that, with the exception of this morning's parable, they are completely unique to Luke. We don't find them recorded by Matthew or Mark. They're stories that only Luke tells. And if you recall, these were told in a five-day period of time. As Jesus was traveling uh, from, through Samaria, from Judea to, 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 to Jerusalem, and you're going to see him kind of bring it together in a uniquely powerful way this morning. Well, the final parable is told in Luke 19, beginning at verse 11. And just to set the stage for this particular parable, uh, Jesus is at the very end of his five days in Samaria, and he lands in Jericho. And he's going to enter the next day, he's going to enter Jerusalem. And things are going to pick up speed fast for the final week of Jesus' life. And, and this parable provides this wonderful transition from Jesus moving out of Samaria, but the more important transition is he's preparing his followers for his absence, which they weren't ready for. And you'll see that play out in just a moment. So let's pick it up. Verse 11, chapter 19. While they were listening to this, and, and the story that just preceded this was the, uh, just th this wonderful story of, of, of Jesus with Zacchaeus. And, and Jesus was having a conversation with people around Zacchaeus. And, and, and right on the heels of that, he went on to tell them a parable. And I want you to notice the next phrase carefully, because he was near Jerusalem, and people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. That's an important phrase. You see, as Jesus moved closer to Jerusalem and the days that were going to follow, expectations were building rapidly that Jesus was going to be declared king in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises uh, about Messiah and, and, and all the angels had said about Jesus at his birth. And with each conversation that Jesus had, with each miracle he performed, and each sermon he taught, the tide of his popularity just grew. And it was building. Uh, Jesus would set up his kingdom on earth and bring with it the promised era of peace and justice, righteousness and flourishing to the earth that all the Old Testament prophecies talked about so frequently. Um, and if you, if you take some time later on today to read uh, Luke 19, right after the parable that we're going to look at in a few moments, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to just throngs of people. You remember the story well. It was a triumphal entry. Uh, when he came to the place later in, later in 19, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And, and here's what they were proclaiming. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Everyone was anticipating that upon his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus would establish his kingdom. 
But Jesus knew what awaited him. He had told his followers on a number of occasions that as he came into Jerusalem, he would suffer, he would die, he'd be raised from the dead in Jerusalem. But as is so often the case with our expectations, his expectations blinded them to what was about to happen by giving them a vision for what would be expected of them after, they, after he left earth. And again, this is off their radar. And he's beginning to ready them for what would be the reality a week later. Now, let me pause here for a second because I think there's something really unique here that I love about the Gospels. And, and we've talked about this over the past couple of months, how, how supra-cultural they are, how su- they're bigger than culture, they're bigger than time. And Jesus' followers, those who were alive with him on earth during the first century, they actually experienced the paradox of the kingdom of God that you and I are more familiar with today. Uh, They didn't have the language for it that you and I have. Um, That the kingdom of God had come in Jesus and yet it's still in the future. It's both. Um, The kingdom of God is near and yet it's still far off. Uh, The kingdom of God, followers of Jesus cannot know the timing of the kingdom of God, and yet here are the signs. See, that's the paradox of all the teaching about the kingdom of God. It's now but future, now but not yet. Yes, you can understand certain things. Here are the signs, but you, you don't know. And as you and I know, even in this time of history that we're in, we experience the same tension all the time today. Over the past year, many writers are suggesting that circumstances are are convincing us that Jesus' return must take place soon, and it may, but now and not yet, now and future. See, that's the paradox that we live with as we wait for Jesus' return. Well, let's go on. Verse 12. He tells the story. So a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. And as we've been seeing all along through Jesus' parables, uh, what he does is his conversations with people always sprang from everyday experiences they shared in common. Jesus didn't access stories from the religious culture. He accessed stories that people were familiar with them from the broad culture around them. And in this case, Uh, there was a story that every one of his listeners would have been very familiar with. Um, Herod was king of Judea. He had been appointed by Rome, and he had held that position for 30 years. Um, Just before his death, Herod selected one of his sons, Archelaus, to to replace him as king. And Archelaus had to travel to Rome to be appointed king. Archelaus wasn't respected by by the Jewish community, and so they sent a delegation of 50 to Rome to argue against him being appointed king. And in a a remarkable moment, which happened rarely, um, Augustus agreed. And he consented not to, that, that, that Archelaus shouldn't be king, but he still set him up as a governor 
and he returned as governor, not king. Well, that was a, a widely discussed story at this time. And Jesus takes this story and he gives it a, a unique twist. And a man of noble birth, verse 12, as I said, went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come, until I come back. So the nobleman identified 10, 10 of his servants. I, I, I likely believe they're probably among his most trusted servants. And he gave them a generous amount of money. A 10 minus would be equivalent to three months wages at that time. And his instructions were pretty clear. Put the money to work until I return. Now, I'm going to press against this parable a little bit. I'm going to challenge our thinking about it. Uh, because I think it's a little bit wider and broader than we've sometimes understood. You see, I don't think this was an opportunity for this nobleman to discover which of his servants were the most savvy investors. Um, or which would return the largest uh, amount of return on his money. And, and it's important to how we understand the parable. I'd like you to think about it like this. These servants in the day of Jesus actually assisted the nobleman in managing everything he owned. Uh, don't think in terms of domestic help. I want you to think more like business managers for a moment. These were people who actually ran the operations of the nobleman. And knowing he was going to be away for some time, he gave this group of 10 enough money to manage his household and his business interests until he returned. He gave them three months money and said, this should be enough. I should be back in three months. This should be enough money for you to take care of everything that I operate. And he entrusted the resources to them. And they were to carry on um, managing his household and business just as he would have done had he been there. Uh, in other words, during his absence, they would represent him by working on his behalf and in his name using the knowledge and the experience they had acquired over years and working with him and for him. And, and during his absence, he was not going to be present with them to give them daily, everyday instructions, but he was going to trust them completely to manage his household and business wisely and to make good decisions. Now, just to add some color to the story, Jesus throws in a detail in verse 14 that at first glance may seem out of place to us. But it's important to our understanding. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Sound familiar? See, Jesus has taken a story and he's, he's playing with the story that they all were very familiar with. Now, I want you to notice something. The subjects in verse 14 are not the same people as the servants. Two different groups of people. The subjects were people in the community, and the people in the community were not thrilled about this nobleman becoming king. Uh, we're not given any of the details, but they send a delegation to the distant country to challenge his appointment. Now, of course, 
had you lived in this village, the servants would have been fully aware this was going on. It was quite the talk of the town. Everyone was debating this. Everyone was discussing why this, this, this nobleman was up for being king, and the resistance in the community was strong, and everyone was, was debating this, and if the servants of the nobleman didn't know it earlier, they quickly discovered that the man they worked for wasn't well-liked or well-respected in the community. So why is this detail important? The 10 servants were going to be asked to represent the nobleman and his interests among people who didn't respect the nobleman or what he represented. Certainly didn't want him to be their king. And, and so the task of managing his household and his business interests was not going to be a piece of cake. It was going to be challenging at best in a very difficult environment and context. And it's what gives us insight to unlock this parable. And you begin to gain a, a picture of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus was preparing his followers, people listening to the story, and, and now you and I today. Jesus was preparing his listeners to represent Jesus and Jesus' interests on earth while he's away until he returns. And he's making it very clear that it's not going to be easy or friendly. Many will not want that opposes Jesus until he returns. See, that's the, that's the sweet spot of the parable. Uh, Kenneth Bailey told a fascinating story in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And... He was teaching in a Lutheran academy in Latvia where pastors were trained. And for those of you who are not familiar with Latvia, just a, a quick glimpse into history. Um, from the mid-1940s, 40s, it was referred to as the Latvian Social, Soviet Socialist Republic. And they were subject to Soviet economic and political control. But Latvian culture survived and, and under Michael Gorbachev's leadership, Latvia regained independence from Russia. 1991, and became a member of the United Nations and entered NATO and eventually joined the European Union. Well, when Ken was teaching at this, this Lutheran seminary, he was fascinated by the interview process by which the academy uh, accepted new candidates for pastors. And he was curious about the types of questions. He sat in on, on four or five of the interviews. And what he learned was the most important question was this. When were you baptized? Not were you baptized, but when were you baptized? And, and Ken wondered, why, why, why is it so important to understand when you were baptized? And what he learned was if they were baptized during the period of Soviet rule... You knew something about them. They had risked their lives, their reputations, their well-being, their families. They had risked everything to declare their loyalty to Jesus and to serve him as a pastor. But if they had been baptized after Soviet rule, in the era of independence, a whole different set of questions. 
They needed to learn more about them. Why are you becoming a pastor? You've not paid any of the cost. You see, in, in that era of their history, far more important than seminary education was the life experience of having represented Jesus in a hostile environment. It told you a lot more. You see, in his parable, Jesus challenged his followers to boldly and publicly live as his representatives using his resources and undaunted by opposition while he waited for, while we wait for his return. Now, with that background, let's go on. And let's see how the, how the servants in Jesus' story did. Verse 15. So the nobleman was made king in spite of the opposition, and he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And were given reports from three of the ten. Verse 16. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. And the master answered, take charge of five cities. And so the first two stood out because they had been faithful to what they had been asked to do. And they were rewarded. But I want you to notice something very carefully. They're not given money or privilege. They weren't paid a bonus. Jesus said, okay, I'll give you 10 cities or fives. They were rewarded with expanded influence. Expanded responsibility. Um, because they had been faithful with the responsibility and the influence in the much smaller world of this nobleman's household and business, they were now going to be entrusted with responsibility influence for 10 and 5 cities respectively. Their influence was just going to just... And, and notice the humility in both servants. When asked how they had done with the money, uh, they didn't stand up and proudly say, look what I've done with your money. Look how well I've done. If you notice the language carefully, they, they, they say, your money has done well. Your money has done well. Uh, in essence, what they're saying is, your business is flourishing. Your interests are, are, are they're, they're, they're in good places. They, they had been faithful and, and then he turns to the third servant. Another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. This servant did nothing with what he had been given. Hid it for safekeeping. And the reason, verse 21, I was afraid of you. Because you are a hard man, you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. In other words, this third servant didn't trust or respect the nobleman. Worked for him, didn't trust him. He saw him as a shrewd businessman, of course, who was successful in taking advantage of every opportunity for his own interest, but in the end, he was afraid of not pleasing him. 
And, and so rather than risk failing, he did the safest thing he could do with what was entrusted to him, and he just, he sat on it. Verse 22, his master replied, so I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out, uh, taking, uh, out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? In, in essence, what, what the nobleman says is, okay, okay, if that's what you think about me, he doesn't debate the truthfulness of it. He said, if that's what you think about me, at least you could have placed the money in a bank where it would have drawn interest. But nothing? Nothing? Verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, he stepped away from his conversation with the third servant, and he looks he looks around at the people who are listening and observing the conversation, and he says, I want you to take the mina away from this, this man, this third servant, and I want you to give it to the one who has ten minas. And, and now you've got this dramatic object lesson about to take place, and, and the crowd, it shocked everyone, and, and they responded, sir, he, he already has ten. It didn't seem fair or appropriate to take from the man who had one and give it to the person who has multiplied it. Uh, no one in the audience thought that seemed appropriate. Why, why are you doing that? It felt harsh. It felt inappropriate. Now, now Jesus is not endorsing a first century version of the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. You see, Jesus' primary concern and, and here's where I'm challenging some of the conventional understanding of this passage. Jesus' concern is not primarily with money or wealth. His primary concern is influence. See, his primary concern is influence. Those who are faithful with the influence that God entrusts to us those who take whatever God has given to us and, and leverage and use that influence in responsible way will be entrusted with greater influence. Those who are not faithful with the influence that God has given them will see their influence either diminished or lost completely. Now, later in the New Testament, Peter taught something similar. Now, listen to Peter's words. His divine power, talking about God's, this is from chapter 1 of, of 2 Peter, has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Every person listening to me, if you know the person of Jesus and embraced a relationship with Jesus, you have been given everything you need for godliness. You're lacking nothing. We're lacking nothing. He goes on, through these, he has given us his great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. I love the language here. It's not just so that you may share the divine nature, but that you may participate in it active. 
having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In other words, like in the story, God has been generous in all that he has given us spiritually. He's given us everything we need to represent him in a way that flourishes. We're lacking nothing. And so he goes on, for this reason, because of everything you've been given, he says, add to your faith goodness, add to your goodness knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, to your self-control perseverance, and perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection and love. In other words, we're to make every effort to be faithful with everything God has given us. Take what he has given us and add to it. Build, grow, mature, expand. Don't, don't sit on what he's given us. Make every effort to do something with it. Be faithful with it. Then he goes on. For if you possess these qualities, and listen to Peter's words carefully, in increasing measure. See, if, if you, you, you take what God has given you and it's, it's increasing, it's growing, it's maturing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting they've been cleansed from their past sins. So, so Peter says, if you're faithful, you will be effective and productive. If you're not faithful, Peter, you will be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus. In other words, you will have little influence in the kingdom of God. And this is where Peter ends. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, if you're faithful, you'll never stumble. And you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. So how do you... Confirm your calling? Are you being faithful? <laughs> Is it expanding? Do you see it growing? Are you adding to all that God has given? Well, let's land this in a very practical way. I think you're kind of catching the drift now. And what, what, what Jesus is wanting us to see as he's, as he's preparing to leave Friends, as followers of Jesus today, you and I live in an era where physically Jesus is absent. And we, we wait for his return. And I'm just going to be very, very simple to be clear. In his absence, you and I have been entrusted with generous resources. And just to name a few, we share God's nature. We have the spirit of God. We have the scriptures. We have spiritual gifts and natural abilities and vision and passion and relationships, life experience, material resources. Uh, those have not simply been given to us to enjoy them, but to invest them. It's all to be used to represent God's kingdom until Jesus returns as king He's given them to us, in other words, to flourish and be faithful spiritually. So in Jesus' absence, you and I represent his interests on earth. That's our role. That's our place. His household, his family, his business. We represent all of that. And 
we represent it and are to do it the way Jesus did it when he was on earth. And very simply, one word's what he asked from us. Be faithful with what I've given to you. Don't squander it. <laughs> Don't sit on it. Be faithful with everything I've given to you. Now, what does is, what is being faithful look like today? That's a, that's a great conversation that we'll have maybe in another day. Um, I'm going to give you three simple words. The first word is creativity. It means getting outside of the familiar sometimes and being creative in the ways that we take what God has given them, given to us and, and bring them to life in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in the places we live. And, and we, we're, we're not simply looking at the past or status quo. We're, we're always looking, what are creative ways that we can, we can exercise and, and use the gifting and the resources that God has given us? Creativity. The second word is Courage. You see, because we're being asked to do this in a culture that doesn't respect or welcome Jesus, boldly standing for Jesus is going to require courage. The willingness to be criticized or not understood or misrepresented. Creativity, courage. And here's the last one, which may be the biggest consistency consistency and for those who are creative and courageous and consistent in our faithfulness more influence will be entrusted to us but for those who choose to live in fear and passivity those who keep hidden what we've been given Jesus' words just, just resonate and ring. Our influence will diminish. You know, a few books in the New Testament call us to lives of faithfulness like Hebrews. Now that you have a fresh understanding of this parable, listen to the writer of the Hebrews. I'm just going to, two, two or three very brief passages. The first out of Hebrews 10. For in just a little while... He who is coming will come and will not delay. It's Jesus. He will come back. But my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. In other words, I take no pleasure in those who are not faithful. I take no pleasure in those who shrink back. And, and then I love what he says in verse 39, but we do not belong to those who shrink back but to those who have faith and are saved. The writer says, I know better of you. I trust you. I believe in you. you know, I, I, I can look around today and say, that's true of you. you know, that's not who you are. You, you are men and women who long and desire to be faithful, to not shrink back in your faith. Hebrews chapter 12 and so since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance. There's that consistency, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, 
For the joy before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews 13, he ends here. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will that he may work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus. See, that's the invitation. Now, I do want to briefly comment on where Jesus ends here in verse 14. Very interesting verse that can just throw us sideways in some ways. Jesus finished his story by returning to a group of people he mentioned in verse 14. Uh, those were the people who didn't want the noblemen to be their king. Here in verse 27, Jesus called them enemies. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. <laughs> what in the world do you do with that? If you have been with us over, how do how'd those guys do? We don't know. Did the unfaithful servant learn from his failure? What about this, and what about the seven other servants? But here, what happened to the enemies? The instructions to kill the enemies were never carried out that we know. And so Jesus just kind of leaves the story there. There's no closure. Um, the final scene is missing. I'm not sure Jesus intended that we have a good answer to this. And it leaves us with some questions. Maybe, maybe just uh, this dangling ending was intended to inspire those who follow Jesus with boldness and courage to remain faithful. Maybe it was intended to awaken in those who were living in fear and passivity uh, to the future when we'll all stand before Jesus and we're going to be asked if we live faithfully to what he gave us. Or maybe it's intended to shake up people who reject people, to reject Jesus today by reminding them of the future consequences of the rejection of Jesus. But what is certain is we can't flatten this story to soften its implications. Jesus is very pointed. One writer said it like this, we may be horrified by the fierceness of the conclusion, but beneath the grim imagery is an equally grim fact that the coming of Jesus to this world puts every person to the test, compels every person to a decision, and that decision is no light matter. It is a matter of life and death. See, Jesus is being very serious here. And so the ask of us is to step back and linger with the question, what are we doing with what God has given us? What are you doing? What am I doing with all that God has given us? Well, with that, let me close in prayer. So Father, be with us when we're fearful. 
to make us faithful. Be with us when we're faithful to make us fruitful. Be with us when we're fruitful to keep us humble. For it is by your grace that we were chosen to serve you. And it's only by your strength that we are even able to serve you. And it's only by your faithfulness that we are still faithfully serving you today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to pause and take some time to just enjoy and celebrate the Lord's table. And as we reflect upon what we've learned this morning, the Lord's table might be the greatest evidence of God's faithfulness to us. That he, he loved us enough to keep pursuing and sent Jesus who died on our behalf to forgive our sins. And so as we, as we come forward, and you can come forward, there'll be three stations up here and we'll have some, some people up here to serve you. As you come forward, I want you to be, be reflecting on two things. Obviously, just come, come with a sense of gratitude, a thanksgiving for all that this represents for us and all that Christ has done for us. But secondly, let, let coming to participate in the, in the elements be a statement of your desire to be faithful. Do you remember how Jesus ended his comments about participating in the Lord's table? He said, we're to do this, remember the words, until he comes. See, this is one of those wonderful practices we've been given and while we wait for him to return, just to be grateful for his provision, but to make another statement that says, I want to be among the faithful. I'm not going to shrink back. I'm going to stand firmly with you. So let me have a word of prayer, and you are welcome to come as you feel ready. Um, if those who will serve will come up and, and take your places with us, and, and uh, I'm going to have a word of prayer. And then you just come as you, as you feel ready. Father, we are profoundly grateful for the life that is ours because of Jesus. As Peter said so well, because of your power and your greatness and your goodness, you've given us everything we need. We lack nothing. What a good gift. And the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, his ascension, his life has, has given us such, such good gifts. We thank you for those. Among them is the forgiveness of sin we enjoy. And Father, may all that we've received inspire us to lives of faithfulness, to take all you've given us, and to, to love you well throughout the course of our lives. And so Father, we, we come to the table and we offer this to you as a gift, a sacrifice of our praise as a family. In Jesus' name, amen.